The views and opinions of the EDGE podcast do not necessarily represent those of Education USA, U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. Here on the EDGE podcast, we're taking a closer look at Education USA's global network and how that network fosters diverse and inclusive communities. In order to do this, we're focusing our attention on four very important letters, D, E, I, and A. In this four-part series, we will discuss diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in international student mobility. Through discussions on students with disabilities on U.S. campuses, the rewards of international student recruitment in underrepresented regions and populations, educational access for refugees, and recruiting diaspora populations, we'll begin to find out how DEIA really works and how we can best support its promise in recruitment, admissions, and education. Thanks for joining us. On today's inaugural episode, we're diving into the state of accessibility for students with disabilities on U.S. campuses. Disabilities include physical and mental conditions that impact the way a person interacts with the world. When you hear disability, you may picture a person using a wheelchair or cane, but this is just one piece of the puzzle. In reality, the disability community is composed of a complex constellation of subgroups. If we first take a clinical approach for background purposes, according to the World Health Organization, disability has three dimensions. One, impairment in the person's body structure or function or mental functioning. Examples of impairments include loss of a limb, loss of vision, or memory loss. Two, activity limitations such as difficulty seeing, hearing, walking, or problem solving. And three, participation restrictions in normal daily activities, such as working, engaging in social and recreational activities, and obtaining health care and preventative services. While some disabilities may be observed, others are not. Disability can be something someone is born with, a developmental condition, the result of an injury, or associated with a long-standing condition, like diabetes. When we look specifically at the international student population, we get a better sense of just how crucial accessibility on campus is. According to the American Psychological Association, the largest classification of disclosed disabilities for international students was mental health or psychological disabilities, with approximately one-third, or 34%, of disclosed disabilities falling into this category. This aligns with the trends noted overall in U.S. higher education. Research indicates that more than 60% of U.S. college students have met the criteria for at least one mental health problem and that almost three-quarters of students have reported psychological distress. The Open Door Special Report Promoting Access to U.S. Higher Education, International Students with Disabilities, which we'll hear more about from one of our guests a little later on, also provides data integral to understanding this topic. According to the report, 53% of disabilities disclosed to institutions by international students were mental health disabilities or ADHD. 41% of institutions noted that international students expressed concerns about stigmatizing disabilities, and 74% of colleges and universities used multiple formats to inform international students about disability resources, including websites, orientation seminars, and peer groups. With this background in hand, dear audience, I would like to give a very warm welcome to today's episode speakers and subject matter experts. 
Lori Laird, Program Manager with the National Clearinghouse on Disability and Exchange Mobility International USA. Christine Bilfinger, International Student Advisor, Office for International Students and Scholars, all the way from Michigan State University. And last, most certainly not least, our very own Julie Baer, Research Specialist at the Institute of International Education. A very warm welcome, ladies. Delighted to have you with us today for this very important discussion. Hey there. (laughs) So why don't we go ahead and plunge right in? We're going to have a few questions for you today, ladies. I know that you're so busy. So why don't we go ahead and just jump in and kick off with our first question. And I'm going to ask you, how can U.S. higher education institutions make themselves more accessible, more findable for international students who have a disability? Thank you. This is Christine speaking, and I am currently with Michigan State University as an international student advisor, but my professional background also includes some recruitment. I used to recruit internationally, and really the experience of international students looking for a prospective institution, I think a lot of us have observed is going to be starting online. So it may seem like an obvious place to start, but I really think that having a good, honest look at web resources is one of the quickest, I'll say, but the most direct things that an institution can do to also ensure accessibility. So consistency, how many clicks to find resources for grad students specifically, are your departmental websites also in alignment with your brand identity and accessible to students? Can they find the information that they're looking for? And then when we talk about boots on the ground recruitment, we had a really interesting conversation with this group in preparing for this podcast about how it can be so fruitful to just have an open mind and a diversity of schools that you're visiting and take a look at institutions that you may have excluded from your list for whatever reason. You know, we talk about having the student make that choice for themselves. So you as the boots on the ground recruiter are really there to describe your institution, the institutional experience, the educational experience, and then allow that student to make a decision and to be resourced to to make a decision about whether that's an experience that they are interested in pursuing. And we'll go into that a little more later, but that's just getting started. Thanks for getting us started, Christine. Lori, did you have any thoughts on that? Something that may seem so very simple is to have a clear statement on your website that says that you welcome international students with disabilities. Sometimes just reading that disabled students are welcome is enough to prompt them to apply. I think building on what you were saying, Christine, regarding website resources, linking to the Disability Services Office from your admissions website can often be an indicator to international students that there's a collaboration there and that they could be supported supported and welcome. Making sure that your materials are accessible in multiple formats and that you might even put on your website if the people require information in a different format that they can reach out to your office. These can all be indicators to people with disabilities that they would be supported uh, and welcome at, at your institution. 
And some institutions often include a link to the National Clearinghouse on Disability and Exchange, which has a lot of resources available. And again, that's an indicator that there are supports available to them. Lori, I don't know how familiar all of our listeners may be with the National Clearinghouse and the important work that they do. Before we get further down the road, would you like to take a moment and talk a little bit more about the organization? I would love to share a few words about what the Clearinghouse is. We are an ongoing project to increase the participation of people with disabilities in international exchange, both inbound and outbound. And we are a project that is sponsored by the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, and the project is administered by Mobility International USA. So we are a resource for anyone who has an interest in international exchange, participants, practitioners, family members, disability resource professionals, really anyone can come to our website or reach out to us with questions for support, and we are here for you. Thank you, Lori. Anything else about how U.S. institutions can make themselves more findable for students with a disability? So there's just a few other suggestions about how to uh, make your institution be accessible to students with disabilities. As far as recruitment, might also consider reaching out to disabled people's organizations in different countries and they can help promote your materials, uh, send your messages out to people in their network and maybe reach students that might otherwise not receive the materials that you're trying to promote. Julie, is there anything you'd like to add? You know, I think Christine and Laurie provided such great recommendations here. I think one other area that comes to mind as I think through this is not just the language that you're putting on your website, but also the images that you may also use on your website to really showcase the diversity of students on your campus and and showcase international students with disabilities. And I think that having inclusivity in both the words that you're saying, the information you're putting out on your website, who you're visiting in these recruitment trips uh, and, and visually who you're including, I think combined really can put out an inclusive statement that you're welcoming international students with disabilities. Julie, you bring up an interesting point. What are some best practices to achieve that? How do you pick appropriate images? So this is a, a great question and something that we, we've we looked at in some of our presentations and materials as well. And I think that you should consider showing students with both visible as well as non-apparent disabilities. And you can do this in a, in a couple of different ways. You could include a photo description or alt text in terms of putting images out there. And Lori, you may also have some recommendations on this. I know you do a lot of work in this area as well. Yeah, I think it could be a little bit tricky sometimes because there's so many different disabilities. And as you said, some are apparent and some are non-apparent. And having some examples of people with apparent disabilities can sometimes just sort of show that example to other folks with non-apparent disabilities that people with disabilities in general are being represented and included. There's one great website called Disabled and Here, which has images of people of color with diverse disabilities that is a free resource that I know folks have found very helpful to go to that have images that they can include on their own website. And I'll just add one of the things that I love about the website Lori just mentioned is that it also includes the alt text and captions with those photos as well. So you're not trying to guess how to describe the image. Thank you. I'm sure that'll be really helpful to our listeners if they're not already using that excellent resource. 
So we're talking about ways that institutions can make themselves more accessible and findable to international students with a disability. So far, we've been talking about web and materials, but institutions spend a lot of their time out on the road doing recruitment. So how can institutions connect and be more accessible or findable when they're on the road during their annual recruitment season? Um, We had discussed this As a group, I was able to share a story quite accidentally. I had an experience where I was traveling with a group of institutions. Very often, institutions will share logistics when traveling and was visiting a set of high schools in New England. One of the institutions in our travel group had specifically requested to visit a small residential high school that was specifically serving students who had anxiety, who had different higher developmental needs, and needed a residential experience for support with their education. And in visiting this institution, I just had this incredible experience of putting into practice, not excluding a student on the basis of an assumption about their desired outcome, about their desired level of achievement, about their desired educational experience. So at the time that this trip occurred, I was working with a large public research institution, definitely going to be in a class with 200 students. And I was able to speak with every student in the senior class of this small institution and to have a conversation with them about what it may look like in a day to attend the institution that I was there representing. And, you know, students met this with varying levels of interest. Um, I did not enroll any students from this high school, but I really appreciated that the institutions that we were with were willing to say, you may not be an institutional profile that would seem to be naturally affiliated to this group of students. But this is going to be a valuable experience for all of us and was advocating for themselves. Ultimately, that was advocating for this group of students as well. This high school did not get a high level of visits. There was clearly an assumption that a lot of these students were not going to go on to higher education. And having conversations with Lori and Julie, they were really able to put into perspective that when working with these students, that's not necessarily the case, right? A student knows what they want, you don't know what they want. So just a super valuable experience. And from the institutional perspective, I think that institutions may underestimate how much influence that you have, even as a member of a provider base group. So of course, we're going to travel with Education USA, but we may also travel with private providers. And when you are working with a company or a group or a travel organizer advocating for different high schools and more diverse locations that you may want to take the opportunity to visit may surprise you, can be a really great experience. Great. Yeah. Something that came to mind as you were talking, Christine, was the incredible resource that alumni can be and really tapping into alumni, particularly any alumni with disabilities that you have had study at your institution and share their success story. And that can sometimes reach a different audience in a powerful way. 
I had mentioned earlier reaching out to disability organizations in different locales as a as a recruitment strategy as well, that that can be one way of, of again, reaching a, a population that might not otherwise know about the resources and opportunities at your institution. One additional thought I have as recruiters head out into the road, it's just that it may be another opportunity to connect with the Office of Disability Services so that you can be able to speak to any questions that students or parents may have about the resources available to them on campus. A lot of great takeaways and best practices coming out of this conversation. Thank you. I'd like to pivot to our next question now so that we may explore some of the main challenges or barriers that you've heard of facing international students with disabilities when they're pursuing higher education. So thanks, Noelle. This is Julie, and I can pick us off on this question. So first, I think I want to start with some background about the research that we've conducted at IIE on this topic. We know that many U.S. institutions collect data about the international student body in the United States, and then also about students with disability in higher education. But there's relatively limited research related to that cross-section of international students with disabilities at U.S. colleges and universities. And we really saw this knowledge gap as a pressing issue because these students may experience a combination of challenges that could be distinct from students without disabilities or U.S. students with disabilities. So to address this need, our research evaluation and learning team at IIE designed a research study with the support of the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs to review the current state of data on international students in the U.S. with disabilities. And through interviews and a nationally representative survey, we published a report with information on the student population as of the past uh, 21-22 academic year. And one of the areas that we explored in this report was this very question on what are some of these unique challenges that institutions noted in working with international students with disabilities. So I would say we noted five key themes related to the barriers that these students may face. The first was a limited knowledge of disabilities in the U.S. context. We found that many colleges and universities noted how international students may not be familiar with the definition and rights of persons with disabilities in the U.S. through our strong legal protections. And that can include Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 and Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act, often referred to as the ADA of, of 1990. So for international students who are coming from that different cultural context, they may have that more limited knowledge of the rights and protections under these frameworks within the U.S. And aligned to this, institutions also noted how important it was to provide information to international students with disabilities, not only on what accommodations are available, but also how to advocate for the resources that best fit their needs. The second area that I would say that we highlighted was related to concerns around stigma and confidentiality. Now, given that students, again, are coming from across the world where protections may not always exist in practice, and there may be less of a conversation around disabilities, we found that international students may have heightened concerns around the stigma of having a disability and the confidentiality related to disclosing that information and who it gets disclosed to. We see that there are concerns about um, how that information could affect relationships with peers or faculty, or even if this information would be shared with family. And as such, you know, we, we really noted that importance of informing international students about the strict privacy guidelines that disability centers adhere to. 
I would say the third area that we noted were challenges related to documenting disabilities. While many international students are aware of their disabilities prior to enrolling, we also found that a number of institutions noted that international students may have a limited knowledge of their own disability, or they may develop an awareness of having a disability while enrolled. This could be due to a number of factors. There could be, as I just noted, the, the differing definitions of a disability globally, and sometimes students may gain an awareness of disabilities as defined in the U.S. that may have not have been recognized as a disability in their home country. Another factor is that students may develop a disability while they're enrolled. And so to support these students, institutions are often working very closely with international students as institutions require official documentation to receive those academic accommodations. And so what we have seen is that students with a known disability prior to arriving in the United States may need to obtain a translation of medical documentation. And then among students who develop an awareness of a disability, there are sometimes procedural processes in documenting a disability that they may need to go through to receive that accommodation, or they may incur a cost in gaining an official assessment or a diagnosis of a disability. Once a disability has been documented with disability services, we noted that international students may encounter barriers related to academic accommodations. And this can really encompass the need to work with international students who are learning about academic accommodations that may differ from their home country, or to support, again, those students recently diagnosed with a disability who may need the time and support in learning about the aids and resources that are available to them. So just to give an example here, uh, one of our interviewees referred to instances of international students using a power wheelchair who had difficulties with voltage converters or transformers and the need to ensure that students have the appropriate plug adapters when coming to the United States. Another example is the need to recognize that deaf students may need sign language support in a language outside of American Sign Language, given that there are more than 300 different sign languages across the world. Um, so those are just a couple of, of examples related to accommodations. And then the final area that I'll note is related to the regulatory framework of maintaining that full-time student status for international students, which can sometimes be at odds with the disability accommodation that allows for a reduced course load. Now, international students who may need this accommodation, you know, can work um, with the representatives from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, which does permit international students to take a reduced course load for illness or medical conditions, but this is limited to only 12 months within a program level. So this can be an added area of stress for international students who may need this particular accommodation. And then again, it's a, one of the areas that often requires that communication between an international student and a disability services office, which is why that collaboration, again, is so key. These are some of the challenges that were noted by institutions in our report, but I'll, I'll turn it over maybe to Lori to see if you have any additional thoughts on this one. Absolutely. Thanks for outlining those. Thinking particularly about the ways in which disability culture is different in different countries. And so students who are coming to the U.S. again may, first of all, not know that they as international students are included under the protections of uh, disability laws in this country. But they may not know what that actually means. We talk about accommodations and that word in itself for some folks may mean housing and where they're going to live. And it does not mean the supports that are going to be available to them as a person with a disability when they come 
come to the U.S. So providing some orientation around what does disability culture look like? What do we mean when we talk about disability-related accommodations? And that there isn't a stigma in the U.S. associated with asking for the supports that you need and that it is an ongoing process. I think you pointed out something really important, which is that while students are the experts on their disability, they may not be aware of the different resources that are available to them when they come to the U.S. And providing some guidance to them about what is possible can be really helpful. The Clearinghouse has some really useful forms and questionnaires that can help guide that conversation so that you don't have to be the expert on that, but you can use those resources along with the student to make them aware of some resources that they may not have available to them in their own country. So when you ask them what they need, they may not have a response because they don't know what's available. I think something that can be a little bit tricky is just talking about disclosure. And I think there can be a hesitancy because of some of the things that you mentioned about stigma and confidentiality that folks may not disclose. And so sometimes framing questions is what are the things that you might need to succeed and walking students through a conversation, whether they have a disability or not, about the things that they might need, whether it's developing new skills, learning new things, accessing different opportunities that might uncover some potential opportunities for offering accommodation. They may not ask for it, but it may surface those things in the conversation around how can we support you for your success as an international student. Lori, you really highlight the importance of slowing down and having conversations with students to really get to know them to ensure that we're supporting every student's needs. At building a relationship and building that trust so that they can see you as a resource during their time on campus. And perhaps you may not be that person, but introducing them to others can be helpful in supporting them over the course of their time studying in the U.S. That's also a really great point. Christine, as an international student advisor at a higher ed institution, what challenges have you seen? Yeah, so in addition to what Julie spoke to, which is really helping students understand that there is a regulatory provision available that you can be enrolled less than full time, things happen. And um, this is an accommodation that is possible, but it is limited. So having that conversation with students about their benefits to help them really maximize a benefit is something that I would definitely encourage institutions to do. That right speaks to getting to know the student and what they may need, but really taking the time to lay out with that program design kind of in advance, there's going to be a practical limit to how much reduced course load they're going to be able to have. This may apply to certain students. But beyond that, worked with a few students who have required a support person with them. And I think that one of the biggest kind of immediate and maybe shocking things to a student who is accustomed to or has a requirement of having a support person with them is that there is no special provision to bring a parent or an individual who is not a spouse or a child on a dependent visa. So there can sometimes be this assumption that, well, of course, I need my support with me. Of course, there must be some type of a framework or provision to bring them. And unfortunately, there is not. So the support person, unless they are your spouse or your child are not eligible to be in a dependent non-immigrant status. 
So what does this look like in practice? This really looks like your support person, either being somebody who's based in the United States, which sometimes works out really wonderfully, but having that conversation with the student advance and saying, you know, this individual, if not a spouse or a child would need to come on a visitor status. And that visitor status is a time limited status. And so I've personally had two success stories related to bringing a parent as a support person in a visitor status. But these, again, it's a time-limited status. So your support person also being resourced and willing to depart and re-enter the United States or to undergo ongoing extensions of status in the United States. So really... As an institution, the immigration office has the duty of care to describe this landscape to students who may be inquiring about this option or about that reduced course load option specifically. Thank you. That's a very helpful point of something that can be a quite an obstacle to a recruited student that you want to be very transparent about and upfront and also maybe have them think about parallel solutions. If their personal care assistant is a parent or guardian and they're not able to do that visitor status, having them think about other potential solutions and finding someone who they would be comfortable with and would be trusted support so that they can come to the United States and come to the institution of their choice. Is it ever a challenge once students come to the United States and they've had the experiences that they've had and they've had the support at their U.S. institution and then they have to go home perhaps over a break or post-graduation? I would imagine that transition can sometimes be difficult because they don't always have access to the same type of medical support or medicine or other care that they've received when they were here on their U.S. study. Any thoughts on that one? I can speak to this. So many U.S. institutions will require non-immigrant students to purchase a specific type of insurance, have a certain level of medical care while they are studying at that institution. And this will often dictate what types of services the, the student receives, is eligible for, et cetera. So the care, the type of care, the type of medication format of care may differ from what the student would experience at home. And from the immigration office perspective, when working with a student who is a known student who is undergoing ongoing medical treatment, if a student ever comes to me and is going to be traveling outside the United States to a different location, planning to end their program, right now we are processing summer graduations, for example, at my institution. And the conversations that I am having are specifically around ensuring that after the program ends and there is a natural end to this institutional requirement of this health insurance, what's the plan? What's the plan for prescription care? What's the plan for different types of treatments that students may be undergoing? And this is one of those scenarios where this specifically can apply to students with disability, but this practice benefits everyone. So, you know, we were talking as a group several times about how all of these recommendations and practices, yes, apply to students with disability, but really are going to benefit your student population at large. 
Christine, I really like what you said about although this conversation is about supporting international students with a disability, a lot of the best practices that we're discussing right now are just good practices in general about supporting your student, whether or not they have a disability. And truly, it's so easy to get caught up with the day-to-day busyness of an office. You know, you you recruited a student, they matriculate it. Next thing, you get them graduated, you have your numbers, all that. If we're doing our jobs correctly, it's so much more than that. There's a duty of care that goes beyond just getting the numbers and really supporting the student to go out into the world, to think about what comes next and to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this question that we often see, and I think that is coming up more often, is about post-graduation options from students in all levels, all programs of study. Valid question, right? So I think that describing post-graduation options from that immigration perspective is going to be, what type of job will you be able to land? But for a student who has additional needs, is accustomed to certain types of on-campus accommodation, that duty of care I also extend to what does accommodation culture look like in the workplace and having that conversation before you bring the student to your campus about who is and is there programming around this as part of our career services going to be um, having a conversation with a student about workplace culture inclusive of disability culture accommodations in the workplace types of employers things like this and that of particular interest to this population but that can require some institutional investment that may be a new skill for specific institutions that may not be a suite of services available at your institution. So this conversation just around this is part of retention and this student experience. So Lori had spoken earlier to bringing in alumni and that alumni experience is going to be so dictated by these types of postgrad options as well. And what is that transition at the end of the degree as you are completing your degree successfully, crossing the finish line? The institution's not done, so investing in that. I went to a really interesting session at a conference earlier this year that was sort of talking about the the reality of higher education and that some institutions have been thinking about international students as being a really important part of their ongoing recruitment efforts, looking at enrollments in general and thinking about the ways in which recruiters can be reaching out to international students uh, with disabilities as part of that and wanting to be really mindful, I think, as you were saying earlier, Christine, about being realistic about the supports that campuses can offer. Thinking also about, on the other side, of the ways in which disability services offices have been seeing an increase in the number of students who are accessing their supports. And so, just sort of speaking to the importance of that collaboration between international student services and disability services about the ways in which they can partner in thinking about bringing in international students with disabilities on that sort of revenue side and then disability services offices as being that important part of retention, the relationships that they develop with students, supporting them and being successful on campus, and that those departments can really support each other in bringing in international students and helping them succeed. And as you were saying, graduate and either return to their home countries or stay in the U.S. and and contribute here in this country. So making sure that there's those open conversations around how students are being recruited and how students are being supported once they come to campus. 
It really is sounding more and more to me like a whole of campus approach because we've already hit the admissions office. We've hit the marketing office. We've already talked about the Office of Disability on campus. And Christine, you pulled in career services now because we're talking about job opportunities. And the only piece we're missing are the faculty, which I'm sure we're going to hit some success stories later on. But I mean, really, the faculty are obviously involved as well. And they're also involved as it comes to their department web pages and the messaging they have on there. So it may sound a little cliche, but as they say, you know, it takes a village. In this case, it takes an entire campus for all of our students, whether it's a student with a disability or not. It takes an entire campus to do the jobs we do and do them correctly. Absolutely. And I, and I think that speaks too to inclusion of elements of universal design in the way that we approach this work in general, so that we're thinking about all of our materials, all of our processes, all of our orientations and events through that lens of making sure that they are inclusive. And then it isn't an extra step for us each time we're thinking about, oh, now we have a student with a disability who is coming to this event. No, we already have practices in place that are going to make sure that this event is accessible or there are means for them to request accommodation so that it makes it a lot less of a lift for each of these steps. It's something that we build in. Well, why don't we um, keep the conversation rolling here? I'm going to throw another question out at the group how can U.S. higher education institutions have these accessibility conversations with international students with a disability who may not even be fully aware of all of the support possibilities that could be available to them? I know we started to touch upon this. I just want to make sure that I've got all of your input. For example, what are some of your top best practices? And as we started to talk about, how do we balance this access, expectations, and resources? This is Julie. I think one of the the key things that I would say is that there there has to be conversations early and often. We know that we all learn in different ways. And so by providing resources about disability services in a number of different formats, it's so important to making this information broadly accessible to international students. When I think about this, I kind of think about it in four key areas, in-person communications, online outreach, print resources, and peer connections. So just to provide, I think, a couple of examples, we found that the majority of colleges and universities provided information about disability services at orientations. And this can include having sessions on disabilities in the U.S. context and that that process to receive accommodations that we've already begun to talk about. It can include providing campus tours that show students where the disability service offices is if they ever want to go and access support there. Um, It could be introducing the disability support office team to international students at orientation and providing explanations of facilities and resources. For example, let's say you have ADHD coaching or a sensory room. Being able to describe some of the resources that are available can really be beneficial in that opportunity. Now, of course, given the accessibility of online information, we've also heard from a number of institutions about the creation of dedicated websites to provide information on disability resources and services. And I know Lori mentioned linking that information can be such an important practice. We've also heard that institutions are promoting resources through social media channels, or some institutions are putting together dedicated websites specifically for international students related to disabilities to, again, provide that information in context to 
students. And this level of online outreach can begin, again, before students ever arrive on campus. There can be the, those welcoming messages on a website, but also to welcoming messages to admitted students that introduce these disability resources and note that institutional commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, and access. Now, I know a lot of us consume information online, but perhaps surprisingly to me even, we found that many institutions are continuing to invest in printed resources to include flyers or business cards. And I think this is because it just gives students another way to access information at a later time where they can pull out that business card, maybe from their desk drawer, and it's there. It's another, another reminder that this information is available. And we've also heard other ways of engagement, like including disability services in information on faculty syllabi or in required first-year classes, or even putting it in your international student newsletters that go out. And then the final area that I'll note that I think is really significant and important is just the power of peer networks. Um, what we've heard is that other students who may have faced similar obstacles can often be that excellent resource for having an open conversation about a shared experience, about providing information on how did you go about accessing that information or those resources, and also creating that understanding on how to advocate. You know, how has one student successfully advocated for something? And I think that that can be a great way to bring students together. And we've heard from several colleges and universities that have established things like student-led campus organizations or peer groups related to disabilities. Some have facilitated small group discussions about disabilities and, and done that specifically with international students to have those open conversations. And I think another creative way that we've heard is the development of understanding through institutions actually working to hire international students to work in the disability services office. And that's been a way that we've heard from some institutions of for them to create an increased engagement and promote understanding um, and hopefully also just reduce that stigma across cohorts of students. So these are some of the ways that we've heard that institutions are engaging with students and, and really working to provide information across multiple formats. And, and what we did here is actually that the majority of institutions are doing multiple things. It's not just one. They're really trying to put out this information through these multiple channels. Some great ideas there. Hopefully our listeners have a pen and paper or thank goodness this is being recorded. They can hit replay on it and take some of these ideas back to their offices. Yeah, I was going to share too that we have some really helpful resources on the Clearinghouse website. There was an international student who studied at University of Arizona who put together a webinar on how to make your orientation for international students inclusive using some of those principles of universal design. And so she touched on a lot of the recommendations that Julie made uh, regarding how you can make your orientation accessible. I've been working recently with a campus that's doing an accessibility audit on their orientation, just thinking about what can they do to make sure that their materials and the various events that they are putting together are accessible for all students. And I'm reminded of something a colleague of ours once also brought up, just related to international student orientations, being mindful that international students have just come in from across the world. And it's an overwhelming time. And this just underscores, again, the importance of bringing up this information often. That orientation time can be so much for a student to take in. So remembering that, yes, you did have one session at an orientation, but there are always opportunities to continue this discussion even past that time. Excellent. I'm going to pivot a little and talk about data. Julie, I know this is one of your areas of expertise. 
How do data collection and reporting help advocate for resources? Oh, this is such an important question, Noelle, and something we really wanted to understand in our research. Because one of our goals in wanting to understand the data is ultimately so that international students with disabilities can be better supported at institutions. And what we found is that the vast majority of colleges and universities are collecting this information, not just to collect information, but that they can use it to support multiple initiatives across campus. So the most common theme that we noted was the use of data for advocacy on behalf of international students with disabilities. We heard that understanding this information could better help allocate and assess staffing needs. So for example, Data on the types of students with disabilities can inform the allocation of resources. And then with this knowledge, a college or university could assess students' technological needs. They can better budget resources to meet those needs. And then they can advocate for future needs based on the profile of students being served. Another important area that we found was that this information can also be used to train faculty and staff to better serve international students with disabilities. And I know, Noelle, you were just talking about that whole of campus approach. And I think this is where we really see this. Some of our participants in our research noted how this type of training has to extend past the international student office to include other employees on that campus. And we've talked about some already with Christine and Lori, but I also want to include individuals like residence life staff, the faculty and staff, the academic advisors, because what we've seen is that the benefits of including a broader range of institutional employees in this training can also encourage that additional collaboration between offices, which then leads us to establish those more robust support structures for international students with disabilities. So I completely agree. It is this whole of campus approach. For this reason, I would strongly encourage institutions who have international student offices to collaborate with their Office of Disability Services to better understand the profile of international students being served and if there are ways to build up these supports. Because until you're working with these students, you don't know what they need. And as we've just talked about, these students may have unique obstacles that by working together, we can all work to address what students need to succeed on campus. So to this end, one of the recommendations in our research is that there needed to be better national data collected on this topic. And in this year's Open Doors International Student Census, I'm happy to say that we have added a question about international students with disabilities for the first time ever. Now, we know that collecting and reporting this information often requires collaboration between the office holding data on international students and the office with information about students with disabilities. And so I would encourage everybody who is listening, who is at a U.S. higher education institution to reach out and see if you can create those connections. Yes, to be able to report them to Open Doors, which would be excellent. So that way we can better tell this story at the national level, but then to take those next steps about thinking about how you can use this information to advocate for the needs of your students. Very poignant comment, Julie. And I think all of our listeners heard you loud and clear. So hopefully you'll be flooded with data in no time. While we have you all to ourselves here, any heads up on when we'll be hearing the first outcomes of your latest research? Absolutely. So we we did report preliminary data in our International Students with Disabilities report that came out earlier this year. So if you're interested in information directly following this webinar, I encourage you to check out that information. It has information about the overall number of international students with disabilities served as of last year, but also about the different types of disabilities, how institutions 
clinicians have collaborated across offices and doing so in a mindful and sensitive way, considering the confidentiality of this information. But there is some best practices that we put in this report that we've worked with Lori at Mayusa on, so that way this information can be shared in aggregate. And then the newest data from Open Doors will be out this November during International Education Week. So please stay tuned for the updated information that'll be coming out in Open Doors. And that'll be the most up-to-date information as of fall 22, reflecting the 22-23 academic year. Thanks, Julie, for your input and the very valuable resources, as well as a heads up on what's coming our way in November. So, Julie, you and Laurie have been working together for a little while now, but Christine, I think you actually have an interesting tie to Laurie and Julie as well around this point of data and how it's impacted you in working at an institution. Yes, I entered the space to prepare for this podcast and was struck because I am a huge fan. I saw the presentation at NAFSA that Julie and Lori did, and my institution uses the Synapsis platform for our international office management. So immediately left their session and walked to the Synapsis table at the conference and asked, when are we doing a update to the open doors tables? What can we look for? forward to. And I just really appreciated knowing more about that timeline and about that release and about how campuses were going to be collecting this data in kind of unique ways. There's so much good information in that report. Campuses come with a lot of governance. So I was able to kind of look into what could be a possibility on my campus. And we've already had some conversations around what is going to be reasonable and attainable for us to be able to report out on this type of data going forward. I'm so excited it's going to be an open doors. I'm so thrilled to hear the work that you're doing with this, Christine, and really taking this to heart. I think that was one of my favorite findings from the report, which was just that two thirds of responding institutions or more than that noted that the survey had prompted consideration of further collaboration between disability resource offices and offices that serve international students. And I think that that is one of the goals is to further this conversation so we can better support students in the future. Uh, That's incredibly hard. Heartening. And it, it brings to mind something that you said, Julie, that the importance of collaborating continuously, right, continuing to connect and check in with students and to have folks across campus do that. And I realize that sometimes we ask students, like, how are you doing? Is there anything that you need? And they're not able to answer that question because they're not necessarily aware that there might be some things that they're not accessing or they aren't able to take advantage of. And often we focus so much on academics and maybe not thinking about some of the life skills as well as some of the other supports that students can use some support with accessing. I was recently talking with an international student who'd studied in the U.S. for a year and was now doing graduate studies. And we invited her to an event and she didn't know anything about rideshare services. She wasn't aware that she could get there without getting a ride from a friend. So simple things like asking them if they know how to get around town. Are they able to access getting to the grocery store to get what they need? They may not come to mind to think that they would ask you university support for how to do that because it's not academic, but it is essential to their success as a student to be able to support their overall needs. And I think sometimes too, just not wanting to be a burden. I think sometimes international students Students particularly, you know, different 
cultural differences are a part of that, but also just really wanting to not be a burden on anyone. They may not ask for supports. And so asking specific questions sometimes can help break through and identify some of the areas where we might be able to offer some information or other simple supports that can make a huge difference in their ability to focus on their studies and really have a successful experience. Exactly. So with that, I want to ask, how can higher education institutions better support students with disabilities? And as you alluded to, how do cultural differences affect accommodation on U.S. campuses? I feel like we've already been talking so much about the ways that universities can support international students with disabilities. It's really about collaboration. I think it's really about building in elements of universal design into all of the things that you do so that international students with disabilities are included from before they come to campus to throughout their time on campus. I think that really connecting them with other students, I know that's already been mentioned, but I think that's something that can often be overlooked helping them connect with others, particularly in ways that help them meet someone who may have a disability that is similar to their own and can help them learn from their lived experience of what is it like to have this disability in the U.S. and how can I learn from your experience that may be different from my own, but there are things that I can probably learn from you that can help me be able to navigate and access resources that I don't have available to me in my own country. Yes, absolutely. So unfortunately, we need to wind down here with our last question. And it may be an obvious question, but I'd like to hear your responses anyway. Why is supporting this group of underserved students in international education so very important? I think that we're, you know, all touching on this, but really the reason that this is our chosen field, right, is that education is such a, you know, a right and access so important and being able to take access even further and to say that access to a full and robust educational experience to an experience that a student can be immersed in campus culture. We know that when students come to the United States to study, that this is a decision that they and their families and their communities often are investing in. You know, this impacts not just the student, but their network at large. So being able to increase representation matters for international students, but really matters for the campus. Campus. And at two different institutions in the music department specifically, I have been able to see doctoral students who both were blind, both were opera performers, incredibly talented, and was able to just kind of bear witness to what the department did and how the department reacted when confronting this proposition that, okay, now we have a student with a visible disability. The student's going to need accommodation in terms of stagecraft and, and stage work. And what is that going to look like? And it looked slightly different at both institutions. I only bore witness to this as a viewer of the performance. I love to go see performances in the music departments at, at schools that I've worked at. And just so wonderful to see audiences react and to really know that this is a person with a talent that they are being allowed to foster and that this can look slightly different depending on where they are, depending on the organizational culture of that department, depending on the faculty.
faculty, but that the department is really also being enhanced by this experience that Lori has been speaking throughout to universal design and access and that department's forever going to be changed by this experience of being able to work with a student who has a particular need that, you know, another student may not have. So, you know, an example of what I think speaks to why it's so important to just allow students to come in and share with us what will make this experience accessible. And often your institution may be resourced to meet what the student's expectations would be of accommodation and not to preclude a student from participating fully in campus life. Let students say what they need and try to work from there. Yeah. You know, I had the amazing experience last week of being with 23 international students from 16 different countries with diverse disabilities and was reminded that disability is only one part of their identity. It can be a very important part, but they bring so many gifts, interests, perspectives, stories from their own culture that enrich our campus communities. And as we talk on our campuses about campus internationalization, about preparing global citizens, including international students, diverse international students with and without disabilities is an important part of bringing those perspectives to our campuses. And then I think about the impact that that international students with disabilities have on our campuses, but also what they take back home with them. There's an international student from Nigeria who was a wheelchair writer who studied at the University of Arizona as a Mandela Washington fellow. And she returned home and was invited to be a part of a process to develop policy to influence her country. She was the only person with a disability who was invited to be a part of that and uh, was invited to present to the Nigerian president and was actually televised. And so just thinking about the impact that she was able to have on developing policy in her country. Another example is a blind student from Liberia who studied in the U.S. and learned about cross-disability awareness during his time as an international student. He returned home to advocate for better disaster preparedness, awareness, and preparation for people in his country and was invited to be a part of regional planning efforts. And just thinking about the way that his experience about learning in the U.S. about disability culture and the impact it's having on people with and without disabilities in his home country. So I think about stories like these two students and the impact it's had on the people that they met in the U.S., on them as individuals, and then the people in their home country. I agree so wholeheartedly with everything Christine and Lori have just said. And I think that I will maybe just build on what Lori was saying, just to give another example, because there's so many of these examples and stories. So one example that I'm aware of from our work is through the Ford Foundation's International Fellowships Program, which provided fellowships to disadvantaged groups from around the developing world. And that included nearly 175 fellowships to emerging social justice leaders who had disabilities or work in the area of disability rights, advocacy, and service provision. Now, since IFP's conclusion, our team at IIE, with the support of the Ford Foundation, has led a 10-year alumni tracking study that has really sought to 
to document those personal trajectories from all of these IFP alumni. And one of our special issue briefs from a couple of years ago focused specifically on alumni advocates in the disability field and showcased the, the impacts that they are having on their home communities more broadly. So just like Lori's story, we had an example of an international student who is a wheelchair user who received her master's in the University of Pittsburgh. She then returned to her home country, lent her expertise to a European Union funded project to analyze disability legislation in Russia, which then laid the groundwork for the future Russian Disability Treaty, which was ratified in 2012. So this is, again, just one example among so many about how international students with disabilities go on to make such significant contributions to not only their campus, as Christine was saying, their communities, and also the countries that they live and work in. So I think that continuing to support this is just such a critical endeavor. Thank you, everyone, for sharing your time and wisdom today. Do you have any last thoughts for our audience? I would say don't be afraid to engage with openness, with learning more about this process. I think that getting wrapped up in, am I using the appropriate and the latest terminology? One of my takeaways from Julie and Lori's talk at NAFSA was that honestly is a hindrance, right? Because really engaging with students, engaging with families and honing in on the value of educational access being our goal and really sharing the U.S. educational experience, which is unique. And that's, you know, why we're here. That is the goal. So not being afraid to engage and not being afraid to ask questions, even if you think they are silly from an institutional perspective. Also being able to have that conversation with your campus, not being afraid to say that this conversation, this conversation around access, this conversation around universal design, this conversation around analyzing best practice from a disability perspective is going to help everyone on your campus. When we look at processes with a user experience lens, with a universal design lens, every person benefits. I think often we as from this institutional background get in our own way and don't get started when we can be so assured that everyone is going to benefit when we start doing this work. Just want to echo everything you just said, Christine. The phrase that came to mind first for me was collaboration is key. I've learned so much over the past couple of years from my colleagues and continue to learn in every conversation that I have. As you said, engaging with our peers, the community, our students, that's how we're going to learn and bring this conversation forward. So I completely agree that everyone benefits when you have the discussion and that you're not afraid to have this discussion, being open to learn. That's been my biggest takeaway over the past year. Mm -hmm, definitely. Lori, go ahead and close us out. We've been talking about the importance of, of collaboration. We've been talking about a lot of best practices and ways that campuses are engaging in different ways to increase the number of international students with disabilities on their campuses, to support them. And it's a lot. It can feel perhaps a little overwhelming. And I just want to encourage people and say, you don't have to be experts. You don't have to know it all. You just have to be open and willing to start, as Christine was saying, to take some 
some of those first steps and know that there are resources that you can access to support you in that process, that you're probably going to do some things that you wish that you would do differently. And we're all in education, right? We learn through doing, and that's how we move things forward. So take advantage of the resources that are available to you. I think the Open Doors report that we're going to be able to provide you, point you to links to access that are going to support you moving forward. The National Clearinghouse on Disability and Exchange is available to you. And we have a lot of information that can guide you step-by-step as you come up with questions, as you are increasing access on your campus. And there are a lot of other colleagues in the field that have been doing this work for a long time. And I think as long as we continue to share these stories, continue to share what we are finding is working and not working, and ask questions when we are running up against challenges, because together we're going to find answers knowing that international students with disabilities are a part of our campuses and contribute so much and that like our supports for all students, we want to continue to think of them as whole people and how we can support them in thriving. Well, thank you to our guests, Christine, Julie, and Lori today. We hope this will be the beginning of a conversation that will culminate at our in-person DEIA workshop at the 2024 Education USA Forum in Washington, D.C. Next time on the EDGE DEIA series, please join us to discuss the rewards of international student recruitment in underrepresented regions and populations. The views and opinions of the EDGE podcast do not necessarily represent those of Education USA, U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government.